0: hello welcome to the everything is black and white podcast hope you guys are doing well this is part two of gibbo's corner and we're talking about the men who nearly became Newcastle castle united manager hopefully you've watched part one and enjoyed it uh, this is like i said part two with myself and john gibson some big names who still uh, to talk about and the important question of all the names that we've spoken about who is the one john gibson really hoped would become Newcastle united manager all that is to come let's get on with the show on to uh, the next name. We're going to fly forward to uh, 1990 or so. And we're going to talk about Graham Taylor, uh, former Aston Villa manager, former England manager. Watford as well, if I'm not mistaken. Just talk yes, to us about Graham Taylor and the links to Newcastle.
1: Yeah, yeah. This was a, this was an interesting one that I think virtually no one knows anything about. Um, <laughs> what it was, it was, this was at the time when John Hall, was taken over Newcastle United uh, around 1990. And um, John had formed the Magpie Group because the takeover was very different to takeovers today um, because then you had to go out and buy shares from every individual and there was hundreds of them scattered throughout the country um, to buy up enough shares to force yourself into the boardroom. Nowadays, you, you just go to Ash- Ashley and do a deal with one guy. You could go now to the eighty percent, as in the Saudis. And if they do a deal, you've got newcastle out, because they, you would have control with eighty percent, regardless of the two ten percent. Um, so it's very different these days. And it was John Hall was one of the pioneers that changed the way football was run by becoming a single owner of the club by buying up all the shares. So it took about two years to do that. And I was part of that magpie group um, to do all the publicity of the campaign, which was really tough because to start with, we were hounded because the Newcastle United board were very much against the takeover, obviously. Now, during those days, I was obviously privy to an awful lot of private thoughts of John and the magpie group for when they did take over. And John came to me this particular day and said, look, when we're successful when the takeover is completed i'm going to appoint graham taylor as the manager he said everybody i've talked to and put the name graham taylor before them has said yes what a great appointment this bit this would be i was absolutely horrified and said john no way can you appoint graham taylor now what you've got to remember is at that time what had attracted john hall to to offer the job of about to offer the job to graham taylor is that taylor was at the height of his fame he had taken over he had been appointed at watford after elton john took over watford and i did a big thing with elton john up here um just after he got taylor and he was waxing lyrical to me about what the wonderful job taylor was doing he, he, he took watford as you know through all the divisions right up to the top division where they played in the fa cup final at wembley famously and john crying in the royal box and were runners up in the first division so he'd done an incredible job there which got him the aston villa job at villa he'd won them promotion and they'd finished runners up in the first division And at the time where John was telling me he was going to go and get him, he was at Aston Villa, but was just about to be offered the England job. He was just about to go to the England job. And John was looking to jump in, headed off and take the hottest ticket in town. For me, the big difference was that Graham Taylor was a bit like Jack Charlton. He played the long ball game for a start. Everything was a long ball. Get it as quick as you can from the back to the front. Have eight foot six centre forward. He, he had uh, he had Riley at Watford and the, he played off big centre forwards and he got results. There's no question you got results that way and he got results, phenomenal results at Watford and he got Villa nine tenths of the way up the ladder with the same sort of uh, playing but the difference is that works at smaller clubs like Watford it worked at smaller situations for Jack Charlton who was a manager had his greatest time with the Republic of Ireland but he organized exactly the same thing ball back to front as quickly as you can and attack them poor Chippy Brady who was a wonderful player in the middle of the field Got neck ache through looking up at the ball, passing over his head. And he never saw the ball in the middle of the field. It works wonderfully with smaller sides. And the Republic of Ireland were a smaller side internationally. Like when you think of Brazil and Italy and England and Argentina. And, and it worked there. And it worked for Graham Taylor at Watford. But I thought if he become Newcastle manager... Remember Big Jack become Newcastle manager. Only lasted a season. And the fans hounded, hounded him out because I didn't like the style Newcastle Newcastle playing and I felt the same thing was going to happen this was before Jack with Grant Taylor and I said to him no don't do it and he was quite shocked and I think initially John was a little bit annoyed that I was sort of urging him not to do because I think he expected me to be thrilled at what I was being told and but a long time afterwards, when I when I talked, and you've got a bad mind, that instead of getting the long ball merchant, he got Kevin Keegan, the original entertainer, et cetera, et cetera. And he said to me afterwards, Gibble, that's the best piece of advice I ever got. And it was not to do something. It was not to do something. He said, uh, and you know what it is? He said, um, a lot of people with me, he said, if I suggest something, they just say I'm right because of who he is. Uh, you know sir john hall multi-millionaire built the Metro center you've got to be right so everybody nods ahead in unison and tells him it's right nobody says no you could be wrong and if you remember once Graham taylor got the big job england but what happened there remember the long ball stigma followed him to to england his famous phrase do i not like that remember him sitting on the touchline saying do i not like that i mean he didn't endear himself to anything He remembered during Euro 92 where We were beaten 2-1 by, by Sweden uh, So failed to reach the summies And that was when Lineker was his Centre forward and he had A chance in that game To equal or even break Bobby Charlton's all-time England record Of 49 goals and he substituted And when, when England needed To win the game and were getting Beat by Sweden he took one of the greatest goal scorers England had ever had Often substituted him during the game And of course Lineker never broke the record as a consequence The Sun, who famously in those days were outrageous to The Sun national paper To the point of of being cruel Immediately called Graham Taylor turnip head And did a big picture on page one Of a turnip with with graham's face implanted on an awful awful thing to do to a, an honorable man regardless of what style of football he played um but uh, you know that was a narrow escape some of the ones that newcastle might have got we wish they had got i honestly feel that was a a narrow escape but it was built on a reputation of if you just looked at stats the job he'd done at Watford in Aston Villa um, suggests that he's the perfect manager, which is obviously what England had done. But when we often talk on my normal podcasts, Andrew, I always say, well, stats are interesting, but they're not everything. And the, the, the thing that stats didn't tell you is that he played long ball, not attractive to watch, and fans hated it.
0: Yeah, a blessing in disguise that Sir John took your advice, uh, John. Um, We're going to talk about a a man who I think many people actually, given what he achieved in the game, would have loved uh, to have seen at Newcastle United, and that is Sir Alex Ferguson. Um, Talk that he was offered um, or was about to be approached to replace uh, Kevin Keegan, who left uh in the mid-90s, obviously the entertainers era as what everyone mentioned January ninety-seven when Kevin Keegan finally walked away. I mean,
1: to Alex Ferguson replacing him, John, that would have been some appointment, wouldn't well, it? I mean, now now what are now we're cooking on gas, we're talking about the real deal. There's absolutely no question there. Look at his record at Manchester United, it is absolutely fabulous. Um, certainly, that was a would have been a better appointment than Graham Taylor would have been. Um, it came during the years when the combo of Freddie Shepherd and the Halls were running Newcastle. A little bit after John was going out to the main fire line, and Douglas was working with Freddie, and um, <clears throat> a call went through discreetly to Fergie, sounding him out whether he'd be interested. Now. Fergie had always had a soft spot for Newcastle. He's a jock. Uh, Newcastle was just over the border. He felt that Newcastle fans... And, you know, the common denominator, we said at the beginning of this podcast, you know, why does everybody want to become manager of Newcastle United? And my reply was because of the fan base. And the reason Ferguson even considered was because of the fan base, that it's so passionate, it's so caring you know that the ten that will t- turn out to see the shirts on a washing line blowing in the wind after a game you know they, they care that much and it's the sleeping giant you know it hasn't been done for so long be the first to do it they knock not Grace monument down and you're on the top and that's what interested ferguson and he sent the word back saying that he was intrigued and interested Uh, And what was the possibility And then of course That's his heart talk And then his head takes over And so many things are happening And are about to happen And will continue to happen At Manchester United That um, You know It would be silly to leave But you flirt with it You give it serious consideration At another time It could well have Happened but at that stage It was just a step Too far Um, And the funny thing Is that his big mate One of Alex's several big mates In the game was Bobby Robson Who he adored And who he loved And uh, that's why Alex come up to The memorial service That was held at Durham In the cathedral and gave a passionate Passionate speech um, about Bobby. And the thing is, yes, Bobby fulfilled all his dreams uh, because his dreams, like my, my name, he was, was as a Jordy, was to manage Newcastle United. But of course, he could have become the Newcastle United manager long before he did. Um, and that was a shame. In my eyes, that was a shame. At the time, uh, after kk and um, sir john was very very keen to make it bobby Ross, uh, as the new manager to replace Claire k and he actually flew out to barcelona which is where bobby was at the time to speak to bobby about becoming the new cast manager tug on his heartstrings strings about uh, Bob's dad, being a Newcastle United fan, gotta Gallagher was his dad's hero. He used to take Bobby on the terraces to watch Newcastle play, etc., etc. And by the end of that conversation, and this was after Bobby's first season of Barcelona, when he'd won three trophies and he had Ronaldo, the original one, the Brazilian centre forward, as his centre forward. He'd signed him from Holland, um, where he was playing. And um, Bobby actually shook hands that night with, with Sir John And said it's a done deal I'll come home John came home as a consequence of that And was actually thrilled a bit What happened in reality Was that Bobby then found out That Douglas Hall and Freddie Shepp Were at the same time talking to Kenny Dalglish about becoming Newcastle United manager Kelly Dalglish was would have had the and did have the backing of Alan Shearer because he'd been Shearer's manager when Blackburn won the first division championship and so Shearer was behind that train of thought when Bobby found out that Newcastle were directors well actually one part of the board was talking to one and one was talking to him he realised, he thought, what chance have I got? If it's a split board, when I start, you know, and if anything goes wrong, what chance have I got? Now, he is a loyal man as well, and he had this uncomfortable feeling about walking out on Barcelona, but was willing to do it because it was Newcastle. But once, in this never come out, and he just stuck by that, the loyalty thing with Barcelona. But the truth of the matter was that Bobby knew or found out that Newcastle, two other Newcastle guys were talking to Dark Leash and he told no. And you know what was ironic and sad about that was that he, John told me, John said, I phoned him up a few days later about the arrangements for him to come here. He said, and all of a sudden, when I spoke to him, his voice was different. He was a bit more strained. He was a bit more detached. He was a bit not as excited as he had been when I left him, and he, he came out with... I want to be loyal to Barcelona. The ironic thing is that he didn't know, Bobby, at that time Barcelona were already talking to Louis van Gaal about taking over at Barcelona and decided to do it. They decided to do it immediately. They they were going to have him eventually, but Bobby had only had one season in charge. And what happened, they brought van Gaal in and kicked Bobby upstairs as director of football Which effectively was chief scout And The second year of his two year contract Was seen out doing that And that wasn't what Bobby wanted Bobby wanted to be at the uh, Coalface Looking after football where it mattered And so ironically He showed some loyalty to Barcelona Who didn't show any loyalty to him Appointed Van Gaal behind his back He should have come to Newcastle And I always think Andrew What might have been if Bobby Robson had followed Kevin Keegan? Because Kevin Keegan had got us to two successive runners-up places in the Premier League. The second one, Dalglish, was on the tin by the end of the season, but the first half of the season had been Keegan, and Dalglish just let that team run on to the end of the season and the finish second. But if Robson... We had fallen right down the pecking order again, and Robson had to start from a side fighting relegation in the in the uh, top division to take with the third top in the Champions League, etc. If he had followed on from where Keegan had us, might we have been established as the sort of club we want to become now? Might we have been established then as that? And I think the answer is yes. We would have been.
0: Yeah, that is the key question. That's probably the the, the sliding doors moment that I think everyone thinks about if if Bobby had come when first approached, but given that we we started that kind of segment talking about Sir Alex Ferguson, John, if it was a a straight choice between Alex Ferguson to replace Kevin Keegan or Sir Roy Robson to replace Kevin Keegan, no issues about money, about contracts, both of them were up for it, who would you be choosing at that time?
1: Oh, it's an awful, awful thing because, why it's an awful thing is because I adored Bobby And I adored Bobby at that time and I worked with Bobby and I knew he had a heart of gold and I knew how much he cared about Newcastle. Alex Ferguson has never been a man that you warm too easily if you're an outsider, you know, because he's very abrasive and he's very much, you know, he's a bit like Brian Clough. You know, when Brian Clough's always, you know, is one step away from jabbing a finger in your face. Alex is a bit like that. If... You took your heart in everything out of it And you weren't You didn't know either You'd have to go for Ferguson Because he was doing it You know Bobby was threatening to do it You know Bobby almost won Lots of things at Ipswich Bobby almost won Italia 90 with England When they got to the semi-finals as The farthest they'd got Away outside of our homeland Ever in a World Cup, and he almost won the title, um, the European with Barcelona, and he almost won things at Newcastle, but didn't. He, 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 but he was a wonderful manager and took clubs beyond their dreams and everything. But if you're hard nosed, you've got to say Ferguson. If you're hard nosed, if you've got a heart as opposed to a hard nose then you would go with Bobby and say the ride was wonderful and I enjoyed it anyway and we were so close. But you can't stand up and say that we had wonderful times under Kevin Keegan and Bobby Robson, but we won now. Now, if we're obsessed now with winning things, Ferguson's your man, isn't he? And the next man I'm going to talk about is your man as well.
0: certainly is. And I guess just at that time, given the fact that he just won the the Premier League as well, uh, the season before, beating Newcastle to it, you know, probably Sherlock's Ferguson, I think, would be uh, the choice of many, even even though it might be through gritted teeth. But yes, John, you are right. The next man we're going to talk about is someone you've just mentioned there, Brian Clough. And before I let you get on with it, I just want to read you a headline that uh, you may well have written, you were definitely probably involved in. It's from a journal back in 1981 and it reads... What a load of rubbish. Brian Clough, old big head himself, twice a European Cup winning manager on his way to Newcastle. Crazy a joke. That was the headline on the front of the journal back in 1981. Do you remember that? Was that you? Was that a colleague
1: What
0: was that? What's a joke? What was you referring to there?
1: Brian Clough becoming
0: Newcastle United manager.
1: Oh um, no, that's typical Cluffy um, because he, he had the great chance of becoming new Cash manager. But, Cluck, you, you know, what all managers do, in the, quite rightly, is if the job doesn't come up, they deny there was ever a chance and try to pour cold water on it. I mean, and that's the most natural thing in the world to do. I mean, what he did on that, that BBC archive thing that's gone out of me being on uh, with Doug Weatherill and another journalist up here against Laurie McMenemy and Cluffy was trying to say that the Northeast wasn't a hotbed of football because we won now. Now, they are both Northeast people who adore the Northeast. We're looking for jobs in the Northeast. East. played for Middlesbrough and Sunderland and Manage pool in the North East but we we're, were quite willing to say oh it's not out by their football it's hopeless sort of thing i mean let the background with cluffy is very very interesting to to what happened in the early 80s i used to do an awful lot of talkings with chop, chop people around the northeastern social clubs and the incredible thing in those days is that Managers, albeit with um, a pull, the northeast having a pull on them because this was the area they came from. The top managers would come from elsewhere in the country, up just to do a night in a social club or a working men's club in the northeast, talking football with with their own people. I mean, Bobby Robson used to come up from Ipswich to do gigs with me up here and travel back the same night. By the way. And that's some journey back to ipswich cluffy used to come up from derby or uh, nottingham to do exactly the same thing and i remember him coming up from derby picking me up in newcastle in a car and he had one of the derby directors driving him as chauffeur can you believe that a derby director acting as chauffeur to his manager Who's going to make a few quid doing a gig up in the northeast talking about football? And he drove him to Newcastle, picked me up in Newcastle, and we went up to, to Seahouses to do a gig. He travelled from Derby to Seahouses to do a gig and, and, and sell out. Oh, we came out at 11 o'clock from the gig at Seahouses. We went in the local chippy. And Cluffy went up to the uh, the count and got three bags of fish and chips, one for me, one for the Derby director who was his chauffeur, and one for him. And they sat in the car, dropped me off in Newcastle, and they went back down to Derby. It was absolutely incredible. But we were doing a lot of talkings with Cluffy up in the northeast at the time, and it was a, I mean, we had, and he he always wanted to do the unexpected, like that headline, you know. Newcastle, are you joking? I mean, we did whatever was not expected of them. I mean, I always remember a gig that we did at the Gates at Civic Centre, main coffee, just main coffee, on stage, and all the dignitaries were there from the Gates at Council and the Mayor with a chain on, and up in a private room upstairs, a proper meal of um, uh, cold chicken and sandwiches and everything waiting for cluffy for half time in this too he came on we went on stage we did the first half at the end of the first half when we were due upstairs to uh, meet the local dignitaries and have the the food and everything he refused to come off stage he said no i'm gonna sit on stage he said and sign any autographs and have any photos taken for any fans that wonder. And everybody rushed up on the stage, did that. I went upstairs to have me chicken leg and whatever. And the these they were past themselves. But Cluffy was right, knowing full well that's upstairs. Um, decided to stay on stage there was a lot of little girls going to go on stage and I'm talking about little schoolgirls, about six or eight who were going to dance and do a little routine on stage while we were upstairs they were in tears at the side of the stage because they couldn't get on because Cluffy wouldn't leave the stage and in the second half in the second half somebody asked him a question about center forwards and he said because he was a great center forward they played for England and whatever and he said don't ask me about center forwards I know nothing about them I'm for a million quid he said which he did do with forest then he launched a tirade at the audience about allowing thatcher to become prime minister because he was a labor guy in a labor area where it's a labor council and all the mps up here are labor and he got stuck in to the audience for voting in Thatcher, who was a conservative. Doesn't I guess there would be about three people in the whole audience that had ever voted conservative in my life? But he was did the exact opposite all the time. Um, but we the, the two lads who were in the magpie group with me were called John Wolf and Peter Ratlin. John Wolf was the guy that went round and did all the deals for buying the shares, and Peter was involved in the same. In the same thing, still friends of mine to this day. And they were at my talking with Cluffy, and they've got to know Cluffy well, and they were Cluffy disciples, which is why they were there, as so many people were. And they brought up in the interval when we weren't on stage, they brought up the Cluffy about would he ever consider becoming Newcastle United manager? Now, as I say, he, he was born in Middlesbrough, played for Middlesbrough Sunderland, managed Hartlepool, and he was definitely interested. And he said, I would definitely be interested under the right circumstances. Again, because it's a big club. That's why he was interested in Leeds, who were a big club at the time, whether he had made them a big club. And with respect, he made Forrest and Derby a big club. They weren't before that and they weren't after that either because he made them a big club, but he he never had a job with a big club apart from Leeds, 40-odd days. Never got the England job. Newcastle would have represented a big club. He made clubs big. He didn't get big club jobs. And he was. that's why he was interested in Newcastle United. And incidentally, there was a, a further approach made to him when Stan Seymour Jr. was the chairman of Newcastle United. Uh, an approach was made to Cloughy as well. And it was almost like one of those things like ferguson two outstanding managers who were absolutely tempted they would never under any other circumstances have been interested in a club in newcastle united's position if it wasn't newcastle united but with the fan base they had they pulled at their heartstrings you thought this is a job that could suit me and believe you me because i was there regardless of anything cloth you might say i was there at the time and heard it out his own mouth how much he was interested in the Newcastle united job and what more could we find out etc and and john and peter and myself made approaches to the newcastle board who were both fascinated by the idea clough and terrified andrew because he's that sort of guy you know what I mean? He's confrontational. He's not going to give you an easy ride as a board, I can tell you that. There's a, there's no question about that. And so, you know, he's tempted because we're a good club. They're tempted because he's a good manager. But he thinks, should I leave where I am? And they think, bah, he'd, he'd be a handful. He'd be a handful. And so don't quite do it and so it doesn't come off i'm right in thinking the uh, approach
0: i think it was 1981 um as intrigued and as interested at cluffy was it was actually his 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 missus who kind of talked yeah. him out of it because he didn't want it she didn't want to un- uproot the kids um yeah, to, right. To yeah. Hindsight.
1: You're absolutely right um that it and by the way that shows how much he, he wasn't supposed to be interested he actually talked it over with his missus who wasn't with us when we had the conversation with him And, um, you know, the hope was that, well, we never thought that his missus might fancy it. Because, as as you know, Nigel Clough was born in Sunderland because that's where Cloughy happened to be playing when Nigel uh, came into our world. And so, you know, coming back home to Newcastle didn't seem too much like a big deal. But, you know, you get settled in an area and... um, you know managers wives don't like moving about. these days they don't do they, they you know play, when managers get jobs they go and live in little uh, apartments somewhere uh, on tyneside side or something uh, i mean eddie howe's the exception and good on him bringing the whole family up here and settling down And that's what used to happen donkeys years ago it uh, now happens no more because wives won't move around the country and they won't move kids around the country and so they stay at a base and the managers go up into um rather luxurious hotels or apartments. But uh, yes, it's it's true that she just didn't fancy it whatsoever. And um yeah, you can see it from her point of view.
0: Mm, you certainly can. I mean, that would have been some partnership oh. fascinated and Cuff, he would go on to win uh, the league cup twice with forest in the late uh, 80s yeah. of course winning in the european cup twice uh, prior to the approach from newcastle and uh, the first division um, as well what a, a manager um, i mean, what, what a what a job he probably would've done at newcastle um, we're going to move on to the next name in the list this man approached by newcastle twice under two separate owners we'll fly forward um to um, I think it's around about 2004, potentially, the, the first approach. But the name is Terry Venables. Um, sadly, recently uh, yes, died, indeed. no longer indeed. with him. Um a, a gentleman of the game, England's um, Barcelona likes uh, Bobby as well, Leeds, Middlesbrough, among some of the clubs. Tottenham, if I'm not mistaken, or Tottenham, played for Tottenham anyway, a legend um, in his playing days there. Uh, talk to us about Terry Venables then, because approached twice and it chose maybe the pedigree that he had.
1: And believe you me, that was a, that was another Miss Andrew, because he Is a wonderful, wonderful Manager, uh, was a Wonderful, wonderful manager, think of him With Barcelona, where He achieved so, so Much with Barcelona, and Of course, with England In Euro 96, when um, Another Geordie Legend, Alan Shearer uh, Best coach He's worked with, Alan Shearer had not scored an England goal for two years before you were ninety six. Can you imagine that? I know they don't play every week like clubs, but um, nonetheless. And Terry Venables took them to one side before you were ninety six and said, uh, "Alan, you don't you worry in the build up. Don't get pressure. Don't start twitching. You will be my centre forward throughout this tournament until we go out of it or win it." And he ended up with the golden boot Shearer as the top goal scorer in the whole of Euro 96 and um, Shearer has always said another Newcastle legend, Gaza had him at Spurs and with England, you remember in England, remember that wonderful goal against the Scots at Wembley when uh, Gaza brought it down on one foot, flicked it over Henry's head onto the other foot and volleyed it in, the boss said quite, quite unique coach capable of doing so so much yeah he appeared like del boy he appeared like jack the lad uh very intelligent very clever man though no? under no circumstances uh underestimate that and one so far ahead of everyone else in terms of tactics and what he what he was capable of doing it was freddie shepherd who was first in And agreed terms with him in 2004 After Bobby Robson left Again a missed opportunity When you think about it Um, He actually agreed terms with him However What was wrong then Again it's timing And so often it is timing isn't it What was wrong then was that uh, Terry was waiting for a hip operation Which was Sort of holding him back And his mobility and and not making it easy to automatically take a big job like Newcastle United, and so Freddie Shepard turned away wanting somebody instant, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, and we got Graham Sooners. and um, that didn't work out, uh, obviously. Um, yeah,
0: well, I, I don't know as well, John, I mean I read for the research of, the, of this part as well that the the plan was that. Uh, Terry Venables would come in on, on, on a short-term kind of basis and Alan Shearer would be groomed to become the next Newcastle United manager. Yeah. That's not something that Terry Venables kind of agreed with. He wanted a longer term thing at Newcastle United. I think the quote that I read was he didn't want it a bit like Cluffy menu, many ways, he didn't want to uproot to then find well, himself absolutely. You know, absolutely. not needed two years down the line. And I guess you can understand it from Terry's point of view as well. I mean, you wouldn't want to move your, your family up to the tying side if, if it, within a season you're going to be kicked out the door for, for Alan Shearer, as much of a legend as he is. You know, from Terry's point of view, that's, that's not ideal at all.
1: Yeah, I mean, if it, if it had worked the other way and you can just say Venables, you know, you come up here and do A, B, C and give them a longer contract, he would have automatically groomed Shearer to be his successor because uh, he, he'd done so much with Shearer during uh, Euro 96, and they both loved each other. And if it hadn't been foisted upon him in that way, he, I think that would have happened as natural progression. But it didn't. I mean, the second approach was more farcical because it was in 2008, and it was made by Mike Ashley. After Kevin Keegan quit, we we tend to forget that Kevin Keegan come back to Newcastle as a manager for such a short space of time uh, with Ashley, who, uh, of course, threat KK abysmally, as he did Shearer when he was caretaker, two huge Newcastle United legends. But this, when I say it was unfortunate we didn't get Terry Venables um, initially, it was very fortunate for Venables that he didn't take the the Ashley job in two thousand and eight because um, he, he, the way that he, he, he trekked KK and the way that he trekked Shearer, and of course, who did we get instead of Terry Venables? Joe Kinnear. Now, <laughs> that that was an appointment off, wasn't it? I mean, that is going from the top of the tree to the to the end. Um, mm. I mean, Joe. Bless him because there was points of Joe that you could like as a person, and I got to know him when he was up here, not as a manager, but as a manager. So far out of his depth, it was untrue. And um, but it was a typical Ashley appointment of people. Who do I know in London? Uh, oh, I know Alan Pardew. I know Joe Kinnear. um I like, I love Spurs. Let's go and get Joe Kinnear. Mm, and I mean, uh, reading again up on it.
0: Ty Venables was offered a game-by-game deal. I mean, have you heard of anything so ludicrous? Oh, not, no, not a game-by-game deal until we get a new manager, just a game-by-game deal and see how he gets on, yes. which sums oh. up uh, Newcastle night under Mike Ash. And It was Dennis Wise leading the negotiations at that time as well. So there's a, a trip down memory lane we don't want to go down because we we'll call it nightmare lane, John. But yeah, Well, he- I mean, you know,
1: you think about how Newcastle were operating at that time the reason kk walked out on newcastle united was that he was told who newcastle were going to sign and uh, when when he said he he didn't know anything about this fella he was told to watch him on youtube it, it, this guy was going to become the center forward to play for New, newcastle United. under keegan and keegan was told to look him up on youtube keegan the man that that, that signed Cole that signed Ginola, that signed Albert, who signed Ferdinand who signed sheila and by the way he did sign them, not the board the board supported him but he picked him um, and he was told to watch the signing by Ashley he was told to watch the signing on YouTube and it was a of complain anyway
0: Yeah, I just utterly bizarre, we've got a quote here actually from from Terry Venables um, I th- from back in 2014, something like that, writing in a column for one of the Nationals, and he said, I always wanted to manage Newcastle United. I always thought whether they were doing well or not, that I could get my teeth into this, that I could take them where they wanted. And it seemed like for him, of all the jobs that was nearly his, that was probably the one that he wanted the most. Yeah,
1: it's it's funny, isn't it? We've said that so many people... Non-Geordies, you would expect Bobby Robson to want it. You would expect Larry McMenemy to want it. But, you know, you've got people like Terry Venables saying that and Brian um, Clough and uh, Alex Ferguson considering because of the fan base, because there's a great belief that, you know, if you get it right in Newcastle, as I say, they take Lord Grey off uh, the top of the monument and they they put you on. And that still applies to today. That still applies now. Eddie, if you want to win the first trophy in a long time, if you want to get in the Champions League, and if you want to eventually win the Premier League in the Champions League, you will be the greatest thing that's ever happened in this city since Grey was made Prime Minister and um, so and that's what waits for people up here and it's still waiting to this day and that's what attracted all these big names and the next guy the final guy that we're talking about was a big name in management as well
0: certainly was and then for younger listeners maybe listening or watching and saying you guys seem really disappointed terry venables didn't get the new castinated job well you just have to look back at his honors list um as a manager to see why Maybe out of all the names that we've mentioned, he's probably the one. win, win Wins the Liga with Barcelona, the Copa de Liga, Copa del Rey when up, Wins the FA Cup
1: with Tottenham. Um, he, played, you know. he, he played the game, Andrew, the way we, Geordies like Newcastle United to play the game. He played it with a expansive football. He played it with huge intelligence. I mean, I went down and covered every England game during Euro ninety-six at Wembley. And you know, it's when the song come out, football's coming home, etc., and we beat Holland, who were the chop, chop, chop team with Shearer score and we scored four goals. That was the ultimate. The atmosphere in that ground during Euro ninety six is something I've never heard before or since at England games at england games and it was totally generated by terry venables and he was absolutely think of everything barcelona has done of recent times and he's absolutely adored in barcelona and there was multiple tears flowing in that city when he died recently he would have fit like a glove all right he's a cockney etc etc but uh, so was Malcolm Macdonald, and he did a, a, a fair job at Newcastle. He would have fit Newcastle brilliantly. He
0: certainly would have done. And on to the final name then, John, a name yeah. that all the listeners will know of, a, a bright, bubbly character, Harry Redknapp. So let's talk about this one. 2008, comes after the sacking of... Um, Hell, Sam actually, Allardyce. Big Sam, Sam Allardyce, yes. Um, let's get into it then. Harry Redknapp.
1: Yeah, I mean, again, another... I mean, his background in the way he played football uh, at Spurs uh, and various other places, Jamie's dad, I mean, um, it was another fanciful idea of my gosh. He, he always had these, you know, um, shall we go and appoint uh, Harry Redknapp, shall we go and appoint Terry Venables, no, we'll appoint Joe here and we'll appoint Steve McLaren. And so reality And what was attempted Become two different things But I mean This was at the time where Harry was Managing Portsmouth uh, And got them to win the FA Cup You know and had big crouchy Down at Portsmouth Uh, I mean to get Portsmouth to win the FA Cup You're doing well And Harry was that sort of good manager He, He always Lived in Bournemouth Even when he he was manager of Spurs. He had a car and a chauffeur that drove him from Bournemouth every day up to Tottenham for training and drove him down to Bournemouth every night. He he lived at uh, Bournemouth all his life and didn't want to leave Bournemouth. But Ashley approached him on the sacking of Allardyce when he still had his big ideas and thought he could make them work with the gift of the gab. Approached Harry and na- Redknapp and offered him Can you believe, you know, we talk about Spurs Him being in a car with a chauffeur Going from Bournemouth to London Every day to training and back at night Ashley's deal offered to Redknapp Was that he would put a private jet at his disposal Which would leave Bournemouth at 7 o'clock in the morning And ferry him up to Newcastle And take him back at 5 o'clock at night To Bournemouth to be with his family at night every day that God sends. Um, and that tempted Harry because, you know, there was always the the, the, the smile on the face of and, and the word behind the scenes in football that he got a nosebleed if he went north of Watford, Harry, you know, because he was very much the Cockney boy who had made his home in Bournemouth and, and you know, his reputation in Bournemouth initially and then become very well known to uh, Eddie during his rise at Bournemouth from player to manager um, but the reason he was going to take the Newcastle job apart from uh, the fact that um, Newcastle were Newcastle was that this private jet was going to be on from. Uh, and then he thought quite rightly he, he when he had time to simmer down and think about it he had second thoughts and and said to the missus and said to, to Ashley Look if, if if I lose a few at Newcastle jodie will go off the nut about me flying up and down every day Instead of being committed to living in Newcastle And so um, because it'll get out And so I'll take a hammering And in fact there was always speculation and adversity wasn't there when Michael Owen was playing for Newcastle and and he was taking a helicopter to his home in Treasure. Uh, I'm not meaning necessarily every day that God sent, but quite regularly. And Newcastle fans never took to Michael Owen, partly for that, partly for a lot of other reasons, like being a yard short of pace and being very reluctant to be at Newcastle because he wanted to be at Liverpool again. Um, but there is that. That thing about um, you know, will they, will they accept me when it comes out that I can't get out the town quick enough and don't want to live in Newcastle? I want to live on the south coast. So uh, it it didn't it didn't happen, um, and it's a shame. Uh, if but I think I'm sorry we didn't get Venables with Harry. I'm not because. You ought to, to have Harry, you've got to live here. And Harry would not have lived here under any circumstances. The only reason he was tempted was because of the fan base and because of that daily trip and he could still live in Bournemouth. You can't manage Newcastle from Bournemouth.
0: Yeah, Ask, you, you Eddie,
1: ask Eddie, he brought his family up from Bournemouth quick enough, didn't he?
0: Yeah, you've got to be in the city to get a feel for it. You've got to be able to walk down the street getting a pint of milk and and then even if you're wrapped up in in disguise still hearing what people are saying and just feeling the the atmosphere wind draw in the city that's how you get it that's how you understand how much it it means so totally agree i mean you know i think harry ednapp was war was one of those managers who talked a good game relatively successful but you know I, i don't know if his reputation was slightly inflated because of his character um I mean, look, a, a, a wonderful, bubbly bubbly character, as I've said, but I'm not sure he would have brought Newcastle much success. The question I want to finish on, John, and you've kind of alluded to it already, but if you could have picked one of all those names I've just mentioned, um, and whether it be going with your heart or your head, who is the one above all else you would have loved to have seen in the Newcastle United dugout?
1: I'm going to go against the record books and stats to a certain extent here um because fergie won so much 20 or two it was ridiculous if he counted up the trophies but i would like to see cluffy at newcastle oh you
0: see you see i wouldn't i thought you were going to go for terry venables
1: no i the three outstanding characters of all three we've talked about are venables cluffy and ferguson i've just got a feeling about cluffy I mean, he turned he, he, he turned a frog into a prince at mm-hmm. both Derby and Nottingham Forest. And what might he have done here? And the way he did it, and he did it by book and authority. I mean, Georges would have loved his. I mean, Ferguson for the for his record says I'm the number one. Venables for his potential because he, he he played football so much the right way and um, and i would have been so keen but I, i've always been a cluffy disciple he booked authority he did everything the wrong way he took the team for a drink on the team coach before a game into a pub to have a pint he he took his dog training with him uh, in nottingham forest but Nottingham Forest in the second division going to become champions of Europe two successive seasons, going to own the League Cup, going to take Derby to the championship. I mean, and I think that is made in heaven. His personality, his desire, his outrageousness, Newcastle United passion, fan passion. I think anything could happen. I think anything could happen.
0: Yes, well, that is what we're at now. It's a what-if moment. Uh, it would have been a, a tremendous uh, time if coffee had indeed taken the uh, job, would have been entertaining at the very least and hopefully would have been a successful one. Uh, thank you to John for taking us down memory lane and talking about the managers who very nearly became a uh, Newcastle United manager, very nearly uh, became those in the dugout at St James' Park. To you guys watching and listening, Please hit subscribe and follow, and head over to ChronicleLive.co.uk for all the latest Castaneda news. And for myself and John, we'll see you guys very soon.